0: This is I Will Hunt. I'm your host, Rudy Getzig. I will be interviewing folks in my quest to learn how to hunt. I know I have a lot to go over, and you can learn with me. Listen in. Do I have what it takes? Will I hunt? I will hunt from the heartland to the shore. And I may not find nothing and my rifle turns to rust. I will hunt. All right, we're talking ticks. Um, I'm just going to be honest right now. We, I, I'm moving. I've just moved into the new house, and uh, Chris is over here, Cantrell Outdoors. And we're like, you know what, let's record a little something, because I, I had interviewed a guy, and I wanted to share it with the uh, hunting podcast here. And so we just kind of record an intro, but in, in my haste, I couldn't find my other microphone. So Chris is here and uh, I just, just want to put something out there because you know, we had a little discussion the other day and um, you know, when I first started this podcast, it was an idea and I reached out to Chris and I was like, Hey man, if you ever wanted to like, maybe do something. And he was like, Oh, absolutely. But it's hard to really tell how much somebody's really into something. And so when I first started, I'm like, Oh yeah, cool. Well, Let's do that, and then I figured, oh yeah, Chris will be excited about one or two episodes and stuff, and then maybe maybe move on and and, and talk to somebody else. So we were kind of talking about it, and he's like, he's like, I think I'm the co-host. I'm like, bro, you are the co-host. So here's here's Chris kind of talk talk about maybe maybe he's had some experiences with ticks. We're going to be talking about that right now.
1: Yeah. So uh, Rudy had me listen to his Cascade Hiker podcast, and he interviewed a guy uh that was like a Lyme disease expert and was talking about ticks and uh that's one of the there's there's very few things that I dislike in this world and one of them is anything that that uh, sucks your blood or like penetrates your body <laughs> and so like mosquitoes or ticks or things of that nature so ticks are disgusting I absolutely hate ticks um when you hunt eastern Washington we have a bunch of ticks because it's hot over there luckily we don't have it in western Washington but uh listening to uh that doc speak about Lyme disease and all the terrible stuff and and to to not only go along with you have this disgusting creature that that buries its head in your body and drinks your blood but then it gives you this terrible disease on uh, on top of things so yeah it was a, it was a really good episode but um, yeah uh, thanks for the co host gig I like that but uh, again we're handing a mic back and forth so I'll give it back to Rudy.
0: I just kind of want to say, because during the, the uh, interview when I talked to uh, Darren Ingalls is his name, and, and he's a functional medicine, a, a naturopathic doctor, and so a lot of people uh, actually have contacted me through the hiker. Hey, just so you know, it's not real medicine, blah, blah. I've had a couple people, I'm like, hey, you know what? We talked about ticks We didn't really talk a whole lot about uh, the doctor side of things, so um, this guy just has seen a lot of people with, with Lyme's disease, or Lyme, Lyme disease. I don't know why I always thought there was an S on the end of that, but... Um, anyway, so I kind of wanted to tell my story about when I got bit by a tick. So I was doing trail work with the Pacific Crest Trail Association out of Stehekin, And and we were, we were on the Pacific Crest Trail there. And I don't know when I, uh, when the tick got on me, but I had seen multiple ticks, but it was my first time ever being in tick country, quote unquote, you know? And so I, I just, I, I didn't do a tick check and I didn't have any permethrin, and that's another thing we didn't really discuss in the episode was kind of what, what you can have, what the precautions you can take before you go out. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I ended up with a tick on me. The funny thing is, I never saw it on me, so it probably ran its course. It was probably in, in, in my leg for a long time, but when I got home, I was like, "Gosh, that thing's still there!" And then I got out the Google and started looking. Like, "Oh man, oh yep, oh shoot, yep, that was a tick bite." And then, and then as he confirms in the episode, uh, anytime you can get a tick bite, you don't necessarily get the ring around there. It's only when the tick was uh, positive for Lyme disease. So I didn't need to take that tick and have it tested because I had the ring, uh, the burning ring of fire. But uh, as you kind of hear in the episode, I I didn't really ever have any symptoms so that was kind of a plus but uh chris have you ever ran any have you had ticks on you
1: uh yeah i do have a tick story as well so uh just you know hunting in warm weather but i went uh i went across a pond over to south africa and uh, it was the second time i was there i was having a great time and we were down in this big draw one day Sitting there having lunch, and uh, the rig had broke down that we were on, like the the Land Cruiser or whatever. So we're all just sitting around underneath these trees and not really thinking much of it. Well, the you know the ticks just aren't on the animals; they're on the trees and the bushes and everything else. Well, the, I, like we're sitting there, and I looked down at my legs, and they're but they're tiny. They called them pepper ticks. I have no idea what you know what they were, but they're are ticks or what kind of ticks they were. But they're like the size of a piece of pepper, right? They were tiny, like a flake of pepper. And so I didn't think it grossed me out. I got a, bye, ah, you know, and uh, long story short, one got down my boot and bit me in the ankle and I didn't realize it. And uh, that next day uh, I got so sick, so, so sick that they had to take me to the African hospital out in the bush there. And uh, they had a guy had a glass thermometer, you know, to take my temperature that I'm sure he just probably pulled out of somebody's butt or something uh and it was t- i mean i thought i was going to die that's how that's how sick i was i don't know what i had but they gave me like a bottle of pills for like 2 dollars american and i'm i'm fine now but who knows so uh now we now we share our tick stories
0: yeah well i wonder if they, uh, if they if they told you what to do with those pills or maybe you stuck those pills up your butt i don't know but uh, yeah i had another another tick story too i just want to emphasize the sthikeen area because my daughters and i were just over there actually uh on a trip and i thought it was too early in the season there's still snow on the hills and my youngest after we went on one of the trails we went on the lakeshore trail and we came back and we were in our cabin and she we were playing a game at board game at the at the table and she's just like whoa and i found the, the thing on the ground and it was a tick and we got it outside because i couldn't kill the dang thing those things are kind of hard to kill, but. Um, anyway, yeah, just kind of wrap up, uh, our little intro here to the episode. I just want to say that permethrin is, is a really good thing, but you're not supposed to put it on your skin. You're supposed to put it on your clothes. And I've seen some videos of, sp- uh, permethrin sprayed clothing where the ticks just literally scatter from, from the, uh, the clothing. Uh, they do not want anything to do with it. And so anyway, yeah, just, uh, enjoy the show.
2: So I'm Dr. Darren Ingalls. I'm a naturopathic doctor, and uh, my specialty is primarily Lyme disease and people that have chronic infectious diseases. So we look at how these microbes influence uh, the immune system and really trigger a lot of chronic, you know, persistent health problems for people.
0: All right. Well, I'm sitting here with my book. I've got The Lyme Solution. Uh, Can you kind of give an overview of what that is and why you wrote it?
2: Sure. Well, I wrote the book because I got Lyme disease myself. So you know, there's nothing like nothing like a little personal experience to uh, give you a very quick education. So I contracted Lyme disease in 2002 while living in Connecticut. And for people who don't know, Lyme disease is named after a city in Connecticut called Lyme, Connecticut, back in the early 1980s. So I developed Lyme in 2002, about three weeks before I opened my own practice. And I had classic symptoms of Lyme disease and went forward with standard treatment. And after four days of treatment, I felt pretty good. But having been a new business owner and working very long hours after about eight months of doing that, I started to relapse and started having symptoms again. So I went back on conventional treatment and it wasn't working and I changed treatment and it didn't work. And I continued to change you know, protocols for the next eight to nine months and actually continued to get worse. So I was fortunate to have known about a doctor in New York City named Dr. Zhang, who's a Chinese medical doctor and herbalist. And I saw him and he started treating me. And after about three to four weeks of following his protocol, I was 80, 85% improved. Wow! So it was really my uh, my realization that I had to go back to my naturopathic roots and really reconsider how I was living my life and how I was eating and not sleeping and really not taking care of myself very well. And once I started, you know, a little bit of self-care in conjunction with some of the herbal protocols that he had recommended for me, you know, my health continued to improve. And it took about two-plus years to feel like I really got my health back, but I eventually did get to that point. So, you know, when I really started applying what I was doing for myself with my own Lyme patients, I found that they were getting better faster and uh, not having to go down that same road I did, and I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. So... Now having, you know, treated 5,000-plus Lyme patients, uh, that's really what prompted me to write the book because I just realized there's so many people out there living with this condition that have just run into roadblocks. And so hopefully this is a guide for them to uh, get around that roadblock and get their health back.
0: Absolutely. Um, you kind of go back a little bit. i kind of curious what year was that that you, uh, you were diagnosed and then also kind of the history because, I mean, at one point I think in your book it says that it was called Lyme Arthritis or arthritis or something like that. So what what year was that? And, uh, and and kind of go through a little bit of the history of Lyme's.
2: Yeah, so the history of Lyme disease uh, really started back in the mid-'70s. There was a group of primarily children living in Lyme, Connecticut, that were diagnosed with what's called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, which is actually a somewhat rare condition. And the fact that there were so many kids diagnosed with this condition Uh, it just really seemed out of uh, character for what's known about this disease. So that prompted uh, to bring in people from the local uh, health department to start investigating. And and then in addition to these children, they also did find there was a group of adults that were having, you know, sort of unexplained arthritic symptoms. And uh, it took them uh, several years. Uh, Initially, they thought it might have been in the form of what's called rickettsia, uh we know rickettsia mostly is what causes a rocky mountain spotted fever which is not very common out in connecticut at least at the time so uh they sent it off to a, a microbiologist in colorado named willie bergdorfer and they sort of tasked him to try and figure out what was causing these symptoms and it took him a, a few years to figure it out but he identified a specific kind of bacteria called a spirochete uh spirochetes are just these corkscrew shaped organisms And he identified it, but it had been a previously unidentified organism before. So the rule is, if you identify a microbe, you get to name it after yourself. (laughs) So the organism was called Borrelia burgdorferi after Willie Burgdorfer. So that uh, paper he uh, published, I believe, was in 1983 or 84. And that's really how we uh, first called it, uh, again, Lyme arthritis, because these people all had arthritic conditions. But as time kind of grew on, we realized it wasn't just causing arthritis. It was causing neurological problems and headaches and, you know, sort of a myriad of symptoms. So the name just sort of naturally transitioned over to Lyme disease from Lyme arthritis.
0: Yeah, well, kind of getting into that, um, I, was, I was just kind of thrown back with the amount of symptoms. I mean, there's, there's a pretty cool, <laughs> in your book, you've got, uh, yeah, there's the, the Lyme disease symptoms questionnaire. And um, can you kind of go over some of those? Because, I mean, it's pretty, like, kind of all over the place, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's upwards of 100 different symptoms that are associated with Lyme disease. We actually call Lyme disease the great imitator, a great mimic for that reason. It just it looks like a lot of other conditions. But the, the big symptoms, you know, perhaps the two symptoms that are probably most characteristic of Lyme disease, the first one is this characteristic bullseye rash. So some people, when they get bit by these ticks, they develop a rash on anywhere on their skin that kind of looks like a bullseye or a target. And as far as we know, there's really no other uh, condition that causes that bullseye rash. Uh, the other thing that we see that's very characteristic of Lyme disease is what's called migratory joint pain. So one day my right shoulder hurts, the next day, left, next day it's my left knee, and then my right angle. So when you start seeing these you know, arthritic conditions that sort of migrate from one body part to another again that seems to be pretty characteristic of Lyme now there's a lot of other things that can cause arthritis certainly but those tend to be in the same joints the pain's consistent the characteristics are similar but the nature of Lyme arthritis is that it changes pretty frequently and the nature of you know what kind of pain and what body part and so forth beyond that you know when people get acute Lyme disease they are pretty you know acutely sick and they'll get fever and chills and headaches, uh, swollen lymph nodes. Um, they can get fatigue. They can get what's called neuropathy, which is kind of numbness and tingling uh, anywhere in your body. Uh, you can get what's called Bell's palsy, where half of your face tends to droop. Uh, and as it sort of you know progresses from there, we start to see a lot more neurological problems. So people complain of brain fog or memory problems, balance problems, coordination issues. Uh, the neuropathy often gets worse or Progresses to other parts of the body. Uh, we can get gastrointestinal problems, uh, other types of skin rashes. So yeah, the list is pretty lengthy. But you know, when I hear about that migratory joint pain and/or the uh, characteristic skin rash, you know, those are sort of uh, red flags that Lyme is probably part of the issue.
0: Yeah. Okay. That and that's the one thing that really surprised me because I, I, I'm. Hiking and um, you know doing some some starting to get into some hunting and it's like geez you know I've been bit by a tick and I got a a, a, a you know a circle a little ring and I thought oh, okay that's just indicative of a tick bite but um, right. come, come to find out I've met people since that have been bit by a tick and they didn't get that little ring so yeah um, so I guess I, I guess I was kind of living in a, a a world of oh it couldn't be me kind of thing right.
2: Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, if you read uh, any information published by the CDC, they suggest that up to 80% of people who get bit by a tick that carries Lyme gets that characteristic rash. However, if you look at the research, the research suggests it's probably less than 40% or lower. So really not even half of the people out there that get bit by a tick that carries Lyme actually gets that rash. So, you know, it's one of those things that when we see that rash in people, we're pretty confident they've been exposed. But the absence of the rash certainly doesn't exclude Lyme as a possibility. And, you know, that's kind of where we get into a lot of this controversy of Lyme diagnosis is that if people don't have that rash but they've got other symptoms, you know, it tends to get ignored by the conventional medical community.
0: What about people like, I, I don't know, I'm, I hate to say like myself, but maybe so, um, what about somebody that possibly would be, uh, you know, bit by a tick that had Lyme and then they didn't really show any symptoms? Is that, is that possible as well?
2: Well, of course. I think it's like any other infection. You can get exposure and not necessarily get the condition it's associated with. I mean, there's plenty of people who get exposed to strep and don't get strep throat, or they get exposed to Epstein-Barr and never get mono. And I think the same is true for Lyme. You know, if your immune system is working the way it should, you could get exposure to the bacteria and never get the infection or never get the symptoms of it. So I think it speaks a lot to the nature of how someone's immune system is functioning and, of course, everything else that contributes to one's health, including you know, their diet and lifestyle and so forth. So you know, if everything is really working optimally, uh, I think it's very possible, and I think for a lot of people, they get exposure and they never get symptoms of Lyme you know we, we have this conversation in the Lyme community about you know, how common is this organism, and I think I'm of the opinion at this point that it's pretty common and I think if I tested everybody in this country, we would probably find a fairly large percentage of people that have evidence of exposure that have zero symptoms of Lyme disease. So, you know, it sort of begs the, the deeper question of, you know, how pathogenic is this organism? What is it for some people that it turns into this chronic, you know, debilitating problem for other people? You know, they don't get any symptoms at all. Uh, that's probably a much more complicated question to ask, but uh, <laughs> I think, you know, it, it certainly comes down to the individual and how their body's interacting with that microbe.
0: Uh, what about treating Lyme in, in a conventional way? Uh, what what types of things are, are hospitals doing?
2: Well, from a conventional standpoint, the recommended treatment by the CDC is up to three weeks of antibiotics, oral antibiotics primarily. So if you have a positive Lyme test, they'll recommend anywhere from 10 to 21 days of usually a, a handful of different antibiotics like doxycycline or amoxicillin. If they think you have neurological Lyme disease, they do recommend IV antibiotics. But again, it's a relatively short course of treatment and sort of regardless of how you feel at the end of that course, you're done. Uh, there is not a recommendation for prolonged treatment. In fact, uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America and the CDC have both really recommended against that. Uh, I think a lot of us in the Lyme world feel differently about that and realize that for many people who get exposed and are symptomatic, you know, that three weeks just isn't enough time to really eradicate the infection and get people uh, back to a good state of health. So, you know, in my world, I think, you know, we treat people, we don't treat labs. So it's really a function of how you're responding to the treatment, and uh, in many cases, you know, longer treatment is often necessary.
0: Okay, and then um, what about, because there's some conflicting information as well that you point out about the, uh, the amount of time a tick would have to bite somebody in order to, to uh, give the Lyme to that person.
2: Yeah, you know, it's been one of these uh, factoids that seems to keep changing year after year as we learn more about this disease. You know, back in the days, we used to think that the tick had to be attached for no less than 48 hours for it to transmit Lyme. Then it said, well, no, it needs to be on for 24 hours. Now I think we're down to 16 or 18 hours. You know, I I think the God's honest truth is we really don't know what that time frame is. You know, we do animal studies where they take, you know, healthy mice and they infect them with these ticks and see, you know, when the tick bites them versus how long does it take for them to start showing signs or symptoms. it's, it's just not the same as in humans. So um, I, I think we've seen enough people out there, at least anecdotally, seem to have had less of a time of that tick being attached and they still develop symptoms. And understanding you know, that's talking about specifically with Lyme, which is one type of bacteria. We know that a lot of ticks that carry Lyme also carry other infectious agents and when you look at the research at those the time frame it needs to transmit those diseases is far less than even Lyme so although we think about you know Lyme disease and that time frame i think you know anyone who gets a tick bite just needs to be aware that you know you can get other infectious agents through tick bites it's not just Lyme disease and we know in some of those cases it's just a matter of minutes it has to be attached for it to transmit these other diseases so you know we don't really have a, a hard handle on how long it takes for Lyme specifically, but we do know with some of these other infectious agents that that can happen much faster. So our, our general rule is, you know, as soon as you identify that tick, and if you find it on you, you know, get it out as quickly as possible.
0: Okay. Well, then that being said, um, I guess you can't really be uh, kind of sort of a, I don't know if you, if you call yourself a specialist in Lyme, but I guess that's how I would identify you. Um, you also have to be a specialist in ticks. So is there a certain type of tick that would, would be more likely to have Lyme?
2: Well, the, the the tick that we mostly identify with Lyme disease is called the deer tick. It's, it's Latin name is the Ixodes tick, and there's one type you know, on the east coast, there's a different type on the west coast, and in between it's a little mishmash of both. But uh, these Ixodes ticks or deer ticks are the ones we mostly associate with transmitting Lyme disease. Uh, There are other ticks around the country. You know, there's dog ticks and wood ticks, and they're different species. Uh, Most of those, when they look at the research, don't seem to be as common to transmit Lyme. It seems it's mostly the deer ticks. However, we've got some evidence now that there may be other insect vectors that can carry Lyme outside of those ticks. But I think in the United States anyway, the overwhelming majority of people who do get exposed to a tick bite are through those deer ticks.
0: Okay, and then kind of a layman's question, um what how do the ticks themselves get the is it just a genetic thing for them to get the Lyme
2: Well the ticks are really carriers and so uh the ticks are really the go between between other animal reservoirs so the reason they call it a deer tick is of course we identify that deer's are natural reservoirs for Lyme but interestingly deer don't get Lyme disease um so the deer if it's got that that borrelia that Lyme in its blood the tick bites it and then, you know, ticks are basically parasites. They need a host to survive. So they just go from one host to the next. So if you think about the deer out in the woods and it's got Borrelia in it, the tick bites it. Now that tick falls off the deer and it's hanging out in some low-lying shrubs or grass. And you walk through and it attaches to your skin and bites you. Now it can transmit that infectious agent to you. So... Um, but we've learned that it's also not just the deer. You know, any furry little creature has the capacity to carry these ticks. And actually, mice, mice and rats are probably the biggest carrier of Lyme disease more than the deer are. And because of the nature of where you find you know, rats and mice, uh, you know, that's all over the place. I mean, I used to have a practice in Connecticut, and I'd see a lot of people who were living in New York City. You know, a big concrete jungle, and we would see people in New York City that had Lyme disease. And although we don't see a lot of deer. In New York City, uh, there are a lot of rodents, and it's very possible that those rodents, you know, carry ticks from elsewhere, and you know, even people living in a concrete jungle can get infected. So, um, you know, we've seen a huge growth of these ticks. As I said over the last, you know, certainly decade, if not two decades, you know, pushing out of these areas like New England, the East Coast, West Coast, pushing inward and there's some pretty good evidence that birds are primarily responsible for carrying those ticks to other parts of the country. So, you know, we've identified Lyme in all 50 states at this point, so no one's really immune from it. But uh, certainly if you live in an area that's endemic, it's a good idea to be aware of what a a deer tick looks like uh, relative to other types of ticks. But our recommendation is if you ever pull a tick off yourself and you're not sure, save the tick, send it off to a lab, get it tested, And that just gives you a little extra assurance about whether you may have been exposed to Lyme or
0: not. Okay. And then uh, I guess kind of being in the outdoor world, uh, I'm familiar with, like, obviously mosquitoes. I think everybody's familiar with mosquitoes. That's kind of funny. But um, but then we also have in the higher elevation biting flies and then horse flies. And and they're all getting the blood for uh, for different reasons. Is that right? So the tick is actually feeding on you?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, the tick... uh, Well, yeah, the tick actually, if you look at a tick that hasn't attached yet versus a tick that has been attached and has had a blood meal, you know, there's a significant difference in size. So, yeah, the tick literally does kind of eat your blood where other insects will bite you, often inject their saliva or whatever they have, you know, into your skin. Uh, They may share a small blood meal like a mosquito, uh, but other types of uh, biting insects may just bite you. Uh, without necessarily taking a lot of your blood out. You know, it's one of these areas where there really honestly isn't a tremendous amount of research about other vectors. There's a few studies out of Europe showing the mosquitoes have Lyme in it, although they've not shown its transmission. Uh, We've got a couple of studies on fleas. I've had at least some patients anecdotally tell me that they felt like it was horse flies that uh, bit them and infected them. So, you know, I think again. You know, deer ticks probably account for the majority of cases out there, but it's just an area where they just haven't done a lot of research yet on other, you know, vector-borne uh, carriers. And I think it's probable if it has the possibility of sharing a blood meal that they can transmit Lyme.
0: I would guess that if there was any place in the world that uh, mosquitoes would have uh, have limes, it would be uh, the ones that live right outside your office. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, you know, I, I've seen patients, you know, who live in areas where there's a lot of mosquitoes, you know, places like Florida, where uh, well, I mean, we now know there's actually a fair amount of deer ticks in Florida, but uh, there's a lot more mosquitoes. And we see people, you know, who really haven't traveled outside of Florida who test positive for Lyme disease. So was it a mosquito? Was it a tick? You know, most people who get infected have no idea they were ever exposed. So we just don't get that background information on by how they got exposed. But, uh, again, I think it certainly is
0: possible that, that can happen. A little bit off topic, uh, I just want to uh, ask you a question about the Lone Star Tick. Uh, Joe yep. Rogan is always talking about the fact that it turns you into a vegetarian, kind of allergic to meat. I don't know <laughs> if you actually know anything about this, but, man, it seems like uh, just kind of far-fetched. What, do you know anything about that tick?
2: Yeah, so the Lone Star Tick, as the name suggests, is primarily in the southwest part of the United States. So the Lone Star Tick, we don't typically associate with transmitting Lyme disease. Uh, it can transmit another variant of Lyme disease. It's actually called Starry S-T-A-R-I. It's Southern Tick-Associated Rash uh, Illness, I believe. Um, but it's a, different, it's a different strain of Borrelia. It's sort of like Lyme light. Um, however, the Lone Star Tick uh, has this capacity to sensitize you to beef specifically. So a lot of people, after they get bit by a tick, become very sensitive, actually flat out allergic to beef in terms of, I mean, you can actually be anaphylactic allergic. So, you know, it's something where you eat a hamburger and your face swells and you can't breathe and you get hives and it can become a very serious life-threatening illness. Uh, so, yeah, that's something that we've identified specifically with that uh, Lone Star Tick uh, sensitizing people to beef. Ironically, we don't see that necessarily with run-of-the-mill Lyme disease. So this is really more associated with that Southern Tick
0: okay cool um what about uh can you talk a little bit about your book basically beyond uh transmitting finding out whether you have the um the disease and and such um basically the book is is uh, a perfect thing for people that don't necessarily uh, maybe they haven't gotten that diagnosis from the doctor and they haven't been able to get down to your practice and this just kind of gives some people some ideas of ways to change some of their lifestyle right
2: Sure. Well, yeah, the book was really written for, you know, someone either with Lyme disease or at least might be suspicious that they've had exposure. You know, I just started getting so many uh, calls and emails from people around actually the world that were in areas where they didn't have a doctor that was very knowledgeable about Lyme. They were trying to figure out what to do for themselves. So I really wanted to write a guide for patients that they could walk through on their own and do really everything in that book on their own. So I really wanted to empower people to start taking control of their own health uh, particularly again if they're in areas where they're just not getting a lot of professional help so the book's really laid out as a five-step process to walk people through you know step by step in terms of you know how do you manage your life and your diet in a way that you really optimize your health improve your immune system you know help deal with this underlying infection and we want to do it in a way that's really working with your body instead of against your body you know, one of the things I mean, I personally experienced when I was on antibiotics is that it just caused all sorts of problems with my gut. I lost a lot of weight, I had lost my appetite. Uh, it just really kind of created more problems than it was helping. And I've seen this now over 20 years of doing this uh, with a lot of other people. So I, you know, as a naturopathic doctor by training, I really wanted to uh, find ways that we're going to, again, work with our bodies you know, we, we understand that the body has the capacity to heal. We just have to give it the right tools to do that. So, you know, this book is really laid out in a way that people can walk through it step by step in utilizing these different natural therapies that accomplish that.
0: Nice. And um, of course, I always encourage people to buy the book. I love books. I've, I've got a good collection. And uh, you can't, you, I mean, there's just so much information packed in there. But I did want to point out as well that uh, you've got some good blog posts on your website. Um, Darren Engel's let's see, darrenenglesnd.com, and uh, like one right here I was just checking out was called uh, When Your Child Has Lyme. Uh, That's an interesting topic.
2: Yeah, well, you know, Lyme disease in children can actually look a little bit different than it does in adults. I've seen a lot of kids that don't necessarily get the stereotypical bullseye rash and migratory joint pain and fever and chills and swollen lymph nodes. You know, for some kids when they get exposed, that's a bit more nebulous and we'll start seeing problems in school and behavior problems and anxiety, uh, gastrointestinal problems, abdominal pain, things that maybe look a little bit atypical uh, for a child. And it's not your run-of-the-mill, you know, the kid that gets an ear infection or strep throat. You know, these are the kind of things that go on for weeks to months to years. You know, these kids get all these different tests and everything kind of keeps coming up negative. So, again, for me, that's a bit of a red flag that, you know, we may want to investigate if this is something that might be underlying their condition. And I've always been somewhat surprised in the number of kids that we've identified Lyme or one of these co-infections as their underlying trigger. And once they go through treatment, you know, their anxiety stops, they start sleeping better again, their school performance improves. You know, all these things kind of fall in line again. So as a parent out there, I think, you know, if you started to see these, you know, relatively sudden onset changes in your child where they become quite different in terms of their mood and behavior, um, again, I think that uh, warrants, you know, working and looking at seeing if that might be part of their problem.
0: Well, I've got a fifth grade going in sixth grade uh, daughter, and she's changing. Maybe I should have her (laughs) checked (laughs) out.
2: Well, we always have to do it in the context of normal childhood development. I'm like, yes, if you have a 13-year-old girl who's, you know, very moody, that may have nothing to do with Lyme disease.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, one thing I did forget to talk about was uh, removing the tick. I've I've heard so many different things. What would you recommend?
2: Well, you know, the thing that we know is the safest is really to, you know, have a set of tweezers on hand. I recommend that everybody just keep this as part of something you know in your bathroom medicine cabinet. Uh, I like these little tweezers that has a little magnifying glass on the end so you can really see fine things. So whether you're trying to pull out a splinter or pull out a tick, it makes it a lot easier to see. Uh, but you want to try and you know grab the tick by you know where it's biting you at its head. Grab it and just pull it straight up. Don't try and twist it, Don't try and you know turn it around. Just pull gently straight up, don't yank it out just gentle pressure over time, eventually you'll find that that tick will work its way out and you can pull the whole tick intact. Every now and then when you try and pull a tick out, it does break off. So again, I do recommend to try and save as much of the tick as you can for testing later. And if you need to go back and try and pull out little tick bits, you can. However, uh, if it's really embedded in the skin, I don't recommend, you know, keep digging, digging, digging. Your skin will naturally repel those contents with time. Uh, As long as you get the bulk of the tick out, uh, that's better than, than nothing. The one thing that I definitely don't recommend, you know, you don't want to go in and, you know, this whole thing I was taught as a kid, you know, burn the tick off, you know, that just causes the tick to inject its saliva into you and might increase the risk of spreading Lyme. Uh, dousing it in chemicals, you know, I remember someone told me turpentine and gasoline (laughs) and all these horribly toxic chemicals or taking dish soap and dump a bunch of dish soap on it, you know, any type of chemical things have the possibility of causing the tick to actually uh, inject more of its saliva into you, which could increase the risk of spreading Lyme. So it's better just to, you know, get the old fashioned, get the tweezers, grab the tick, pull it gently straight out. And that's really the safest, easiest way to remove the tick.
0: Well, you just almost described a Looney Tunes, Wile E. Coyote situation where he blows himself <laughs> up and, and the tick's still alive, you know?
2: <laughs> oh, man. Well, you know, there was an interesting study that came out, I think it was last year, where they showed that using peppermint oil, if you dump some peppermint oil on the tick and just let it there, that the tick would naturally remove itself. Uh, you know, that may be the case. Uh, again, I would be concerned that you know, dumping peppermint oil, which is very harsh, might actually cause the tick to inject some of its saliva. So, again, rather be safe than sorry and just, you know, go with the tweezers, and that way you know that you've got the whole tick removed.
0: You're, um, you've got some really cool maps on your website. Uh, can you talk about just kind of over the years how, how much ch- has changed as far as, uh, you know, Lyme cases?
2: Well, you know, the number of Lyme cases uh, is a little bit hard to pinpoint because the way it's reported is based on basically who has a positive Lyme test. And unfortunately, with Lyme testing, there's a lot of problems with the testing itself. So uh, we came out with some research, uh, I say maybe it was a couple, three years ago, where, you know, the CDC was really reporting about 30,000 cases a year or 30,000, say, new cases a year. And when they kind of went back with the statistics and looked at it and realizing how underreported Lyme was, they figured it was a factor of 10. So uh, when you start you know, redoing the numbers, that brings it up to about 300,000 new cases a year. So, you know, our best guesstimate is probably no less than 300,000 new cases each year. Again, that's probably still underreported because of all the issues in and around Lyme testing. But the actual number of people is really just a guesstimate, I think, you know, it's it's half a million people, maybe more a year. And that's just in the United States. You know, when you look worldwide, you know, Europe reports about 65,000 cases a year. Canada reports just under a 1000 cases a year. And we know in Canada, it's grossly underreported as well. So, you know, we, we know with certainty that we are talking about millions and millions of people worldwide living with Lyme disease. Uh, the World Health Organization has identified Lyme as, you know, the fastest-growing vector-borne disease in the world. So every year the numbers keep going up and up, and with the tick population continuing to explode, uh, I don't see uh, this slowing down anytime soon.
0: Okay. Uh, last question. Uh, your book, The Lyme Solution, um, I forget exactly what date it came out. Has anything changed? Because I know a lot of stuff can change uh, by the time uh, certain people get a hold of a book. Has anything been – need to be updated or or added to the book, you know?
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, you know how it is when you write a book. By the time you get the book (laughs) completed and turn it into the publisher, you know, all these things change. So, yeah, there are a few things in terms of some of, like, the CDC guidelines that I talk about in the book – You know, they used to make a recommendation of one dose of doxycycline if you've had exposure to a tick and you think might have Lyme. That recommendation is no longer in place, not to mention that they never, ever did a study showing that a single dose of doxycycline was useful for anything. So that's kind of old hat and and that's not applicable anymore. You know, in terms of the other CDC recommendations, that's pretty much the same as it was when I uh, turned the manuscript in. Uh, I think, you know, some of the, the information that's really changed is just other things that we've learned about Lyme transmission. You know, we now have a few studies that have shown it can be passed from mom to baby if mom is pregnant and has Lyme. We've now found, you know, Lyme in the breast milk of moms. We've found Lyme in the semen of men and the vaginal secretions of women suggesting that it could be sexually transmitted as well so i think we're starting to learn more about other ways people can get lyme outside of a tick bite but uh, again i think it's an area where there just needs to be a lot more research in it
0: okay wow that's good stuff um do you have any uh, social places people should look you up in
2: yeah so we've got uh, of course facebook instagram uh, pinterest uh, YouTube. Uh, all of my social media handles are Darren Ingalls ND. So if you search for that on any of the major social media channels, you'll find us.
0: Okay. Well, hey, thanks for your time. And um, I just want once again, I recommend people to grab this book. It's been just full of information. Great. Thanks, Rudy. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Please rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram. at IWillHuntPodcast. hunt podcast. Same on Facebook and Twitter. Check out the website at IWillHunt.com, and you can always send us ideas or feedback. IWillHuntPodcast at gmail.com. This episode featured Chris Cantrell. Follow him on Instagram at Cantrell Outdoors. Thanks to Jack Mattingly and the Whiskey Fever for creating a theme song for the show. Check them out at ReverbNation.com slash Whiskey Fever. Tell me who you see
1: there waiting in the grass Silent like a graveyard, lakes a sheet of glass And I will hunt till I find what I'm looking for And I will hunt from the heartland to the shore And I may not find nothing and my rifle turns to rust I will hunt